We'll get your Bibles open uh, to uh, Mark's Gospel. Uh, chapter 16 is where we're at uh, here today. And uh, I got a question for you. You can think about as you're getting turned there. Uh, when was the last time uh, that you were truly astonished by something? I mean, like, like blown away, you know, shocked. Maybe it was appalled or amazed or something like that. Can you think about a time where that happened? I, you know, I feel like we live in a, in a day now where, you know, most of us anyways are, are, are so hyper plugged into everything that's going on, on, you know, on a, on a global scale. And, you know, we're constantly receiving and, and processing so much information that I think our, our ability to be, you know, legitimately astonished is somewhat diminished, I think, just because of the, like the sheer volume and plethora of, of, of things coming at us constantly. Have you noticed that, you know, it seems like every week now there's, you know, a news story about another shooting, you know, in a, in a school or, or in a church or at a mall. You know, it's another, it's another tweet from the president. You know, it's, it's the horrific abortion statistics that we see over and over again. Or, or maybe it's, it's viral videos, right, that, that you've seen showing heroic rescues or, or, or funny bloopers or, you know, wild stunts, whatever it may be. I mean, just, just this week, a friend of mine texted me a video of, uh, of, of this guy who went hang gliding for the very first time. And uh, he was with his instructor. And as they took off, uh, you learn really quickly, he's not strapped in. Okay. And so he goes like off this cliff and he's holding on with one hand and the instructor's holding on to him and they're trying to land this thing. He's trying to fly it. And, you know, he gets, he gets down to the ground and he, and he lets go right, you know, before impact and he like breaks his arm, but he's, but he's fine. You know, I was thinking about this. Like I'm almost 38 years old now. I've had nothing even remotely as crazy as that happen to me. But I watched this video and I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I saw the very next day, there's like another hang gliding video that came up on my newsfeed. I'm like, why? Like, I don't need to watch that. Like, why bother? Like, I, it, it, like, that's crazy what happened. But for me, I'm just, it doesn't, doesn't even have an impact, right? True, truthfully, these examples are, are astounding, right? You know, to various degrees and for various reasons. Um, but because we see and we hear about these types of things over and over again and so often, I think in some ways become, we become a little desensitized to uh, how astonishing it really is. And, and getting to the point of, of being truly blown away by all of these things uh, seems to be uh, more of a rarity than maybe it, it once was. Well, today we're concluding our series in Mark's Gospel Right, with last week bringing us to the uh, crucifixion, and now today the, the resurrection as we look at this, uh, we're at the climax of the book, right? This is, this is it. Everything has been driving towards this. And so what we're going to see here is, is that the resurrection, as much as you and I have, have probably read it before, most of us anyways, have, we've read it before, but probably multiple times, we've, we've heard sermons on it. We've been to Easter services. It's, you know, many, many times uh, we've heard it. And that being said, it really is astonishing when you really kind of think about it, right? It truly is the event upon which human history, world history hinges, right? It, it is. It, it was definitely a, a shocking moment for these, 
for these women here as they, you know, came to the tomb and they found the scene as it was. And, you know, as Jesus rising from the dead was to compel them to, to faith and to action, it, it compels you and I now today to consider our own response to all of these things. Well, this is what we're going to be looking at here today. But before we jump into verse 1, uh, why don't you join me as we pray? God, we come before you as your church and we love you and we're just so thankful for your word and, and God for how you uh, have made it so clear that uh, yes, you died, but uh, you have uh, also been brought to life. Uh, Jesus Christ is risen. And God, today, uh, we, uh, as we work through this passage, Lord, I pray that uh, we would um, be compelled to respond, Lord. I pray that it would not be... Um, just another ho-hum, you know, bit of information that goes in one ear and out the other. But Lord, I pray that it would shake us. I pray that uh, we would be astonished by this. Lord, not in an emotionalism type way, uh, but Lord, as we just kind of consider the reality, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would allow it to, to strike us and to hit us and, and, and transform us. And so God, I pray today that as, uh, as we as believers, we come before you, we've heard this before, Lord, but we need, to, we need to understand it in deeper ways. That's what our heart needs most of all, Lord. I pray that if, if there is anyone here who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that uh, that would in fact happen. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be so good uh, to save someone here today. And so God, we thank you again for this time together as your bride, as the church. Uh, make these things clear, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the first thing here, uh, along in your notes, it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, the astonishing news of the resurrection compels me, first of all, uh, to believe that God has done the impossible. Hey, we got to believe that. Uh, take a look at this now, starting in verse 1 of Mark 16. It says this, uh, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. All right, so these are, the, these are three of the women, anyways, who, who witnessed the death of Jesus Christ, like we talked about just last week in chapter 15. So they, had, they had seen this, and they had, they had followed the action, uh, albeit at, uh, at a distance here. All right, so now, now the Sabbath uh, celebration was over. Now that it was, they were able to purchase uh, these spices to anoint the body, Okay. Now, this wasn't embalming, as you know, some of us might be familiar with, but rather this was perfuming uh, the body as it uh, decomposed. Okay? Now, that's, that's something that would normally have happened as the body was being put uh, into the tomb, but that didn't happen yet because of the timing of Passover. Now, why explain these details? Some of you might be thinking, that's too much information for me. Well, we explain them because I think it really helps us uh, to, to understand the headspace of these women as they were approaching the tomb here today, right? They, you know, Jesus had been killed three days earlier on what we celebrate around Easter time as Good Friday, right? He had been killed, he'd been buried, and while he had said that he would rise, he had told his disciples this. We know that they, you know, that kind of went over their heads. They didn't get it, they didn't understand uh, yet, okay? And so their expectation as they're, as they're walking towards the tomb here is simply like, it's over. Like, it, it's done. Like, you know, Jesus was our friend and he said and did some amazing things, but, but now he's dead, 
right? It's, it, it, it's game over. It, for them, it was, it was sorrow and for sure a lot of confusion about all of this and trying to put the pieces together and, and, and they, were, they were grieving. And so what they were doing as they were coming here uh, on the Sunday was, was simply hoping to do their little part to, to honor Jesus' body. And I mean, they definitely weren't expecting what was about to happen next. Verse two, take a look. It says, in very early on the first day of the week, so this is what we know as Resurrection Sunday, when the sun had risen, I don't know, pun intended there, church? What do you think? Some of you caught that. Doesn't matter, keep going. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And it says, and looking up, okay, pause right there. So it appears that, that what was their body language like? Right? They've, been, they've been walking towards the tomb. It's early morning, and they're sort of like, they're kind of shuffling along, right? Their heads are down, and again, they're, they're, they're grieved, they're defeated, right? They're, they're, they're so down about all of this, and it's just so much, so much sorrow. And so, I mean, you might expect that, though, of them. But it says then, and, and, and looking up, okay? So they get their eyes up. It says that they saw that the, the stone had been rolled back, it says, and it was very large, Okay, so because they'd gone so early in the morning, and we know this already, that the men, the disciples, they'd scattered, right? They'd, they'd ran, they'd taken off, right? They'd wondered as they were walking after this, how are, how are we going to move this stone? Like, it's, it's huge. How are we going to do this? But they arrive and find that this large stone, as the text tells us here, it was already rolled away. Now understand that the implication here being that, that God himself did it. Okay, the, 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 the impossible, the impossible had happened. They were, they, they, were, they were literally stepping forth into an astonishing new reality here as they enter the tomb. Verse five picks it up. It says, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Okay, so realize this is an angel. Right? This is an angel that they're seeing here. And, and the women's reaction here is, is extremely consistent with the reactions of, of multiple people throughout the scriptures whenever they come face to face with an angel. It says there that they were, they were alarmed, right? They were alarmed. And I mean, I was thinking back to, you know, when Jesus, the pronouncement of Jesus being born was made to the shepherds, right? They were, they were alarmed, and so this, this angel, though, he, he tries to help them out. And he tells them, do not be alarmed, verse 6. Okay, now that word alarmed there is, is pretty good. It's actually very, very literally, it means kind of a combination of things. It's a mixture of, of fear and, and wonder and amazement and, and astonishment, Okay, so when the, when the ladies come into the tomb here, this is a supernatural encounter and, and, and moment as, as what they were expecting to come across was, was not at all the scene. And instead, it was something entirely different. It was, it was wonderful. It was at the same time terrifying. And again, the, the, the angel tells them, do not be alarmed. So he tries to, he tries to calm their fears. Again, when the, or when, the, when the shepherds, you know, had that encounter with the angels when Jesus was born, what, 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 are the, what do the angels say then? 
Fear not, right? It's a pretty common response. They say, do not be alarmed. Verse six, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And then it says, he has risen, right? Literally, literally that means he was raised as in God raised him. God has done the impossible. They keep going. The angel says, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, a couple of things here that should not escape our notice as we kind of look at some of the details of this. Okay, first of all, uh, the fact that, um, that women were the first ones to encounter the empty tomb and, and, and learn of the resurrection, and that's what's recorded. That's a, that's a pretty bold move uh, made by not only Mark, but actually all of the gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John uh, as well, Okay. Now, you need to understand that, that these guys who wrote the Gospels, they, they've long been accused and criticized for just making this whole thing up, right? Now, a lot of people don't criticize them as much anymore because there's kind of evidence to suggest that, 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 they, that they didn't make it up. Um, but the reality is back in that day, if you were trying to fabricate testimony, okay, you would not have used women's testimony as a way to try and prove your case, because back in that very patriarchal society, women's testimonies, especially in a court of law, uh, they didn't mean uh, really anything at all. Right? They wouldn't have used women as witnesses here if they were just making this up. So all of this suggests that the gospel writers, they're just simply recording these accounts as they actually occurred. Right? And women happen to be the first witnesses. In verse 5, Take a look at that. It gives us this kind of seemingly unimportant detail here that we got to see that the angel was, you notice where he was sitting? On the, on the right side. Okay, now that, that's, you know, that, that kind of specific detail there is, is also not typically given in fabricated testimonies, right? If someone was to make something up, they generally keep it, well, more general, they wouldn't give a very specific example like that. Again, this just suggests that, that Mark is just delivering the facts as has been communicated to him. Okay, now second thing to notice is the, the emphasis or, or the repetition on what's seen with the physical eye. I don't know if you picked up on that, but in verse four, take a look, it says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. Verse five. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man. Verse six, the angel says, see the place where they laid him? Okay, th this helps you and I understand that, that Jesus didn't you know, merely experience uh, like a spiritual resurrection of, of sorts, but, but rather an, like an actual, literal, real world, physical, bodily resurrection rising from the dead. Okay, so the women were observing this scene with their own two eyes. Right? And even the angel, he, he invites them to, to examine the empty tomb. Like, see for yourselves. Right? He's, he's not here. And so the intended response then for these, for these women is, is not just to see with their, with their eyes, but to, but to believe. Right? So, so both rationally and from the heart that, that God has actually done this. Right? As impossible as it all seems, God astonishingly actually raised Jesus from the dead. So the question then is, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that, 
that Jesus Christ was once dead and now he is alive. Okay, this isn't just some, some fable or, or some legend that's been you know, passed down and, 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 and talked about and shared around campfires throughout the generations where you know, we've kind of heard it so many times that on a surface level, we just sort of accept this as, you know, we've, we've learned to accept it. No. Have you, have you spent time personally seeing with your own two eyes, so to speak, taking in the details of this, weighing the evidence, considering the facts, coming to your own conclusion. You know, so many people who call themselves Christians, they, they, you know, they, they, we want the, the transformed life. We want the Lord to come in and, and, and make all things new. We want, we want the power of the Spirit you know, in our lives and, and, and all of those good things. But listen, it begins with, with processing what, what these women were processing as they, they walk up to the empty tomb and have this encounter with the angel. Right? Each one of us getting to the place where we're like, whoa, right? something, something astonishing occurred. The resurrection happened. Do you believe it? Right? It starts there for everyone who would profess Christ. God raised Jesus for you to pay for your sins, to reconcile you with, with your creator, right? to defeat Sin and, 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 and Satan and death and hell and, and, and to bring justice to a world that, that so desperately needed it. And so listen, have you confessed Jesus as your savior? Have you done that today? Have you understand, understood that, that all of this was, was for you? It was for me too. You know, as we put these pieces together and we absorb all of this, the, you know, the astonishing reality compels us, I believe, to, to, to believe this, right? To believe in him as, as, as your Lord, as your personal savior and, and, and respond to him in, in worship and radical surrender, right? To the God who would go to all this trouble to, to die and then rise again for, for little old you and I. See, the astonishing news of the resurrection compels me, first of all, to believe, but then to proclaim that God has done the impossible. And that's the second thing. Take a peek now at verse seven. The angel says this, but, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Maybe you're looking at it and you're like, well, hold on a second. Why does he you know, differentiate between the disciples and Peter? Wasn't Peter a disciple as well? I think this is just kind of a, a really amazing you know, personal touch that this angel gives to Peter. Remember last time we saw Peter, he was denying Jesus. And he would have been feeling the weight of his failure in all of this. I think this is just amazing how you know, the Lord gives him this. You know, you're still mine. I'm, I'm not done with you yet. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell them what? Well, go tell them that he is going before you to Galilee. 
This is pretty amazing, actually. This is a direct fulfillment, if you want to flip back just a page, uh, to chapter 14, verse 28. Do you see that there in your Bibles? Right, where Jesus told them that he'd do what? Go before them to Galilee, right? He just said it straight up there. I'm going I'm to go before you to Galilee. And now the angel is saying he's, he's going to literally do that very thing. It's fulfillment of what Jesus had said would happen before he was crucified. The angel goes on and he says, there you will see him just as he told you. And look at what the, the women do. It says, and they went out from there and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment, there's our word, had, had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now listen, I'm going to get to unpacking uh, some of that stuff here in, in just a moment, but I actually want to hit the pause button here for just a second and, uh, and address uh, what comes next uh, in your text and actually explain to you uh, as the church why I'm choosing to uh, end our series at verse 8, okay, and, and, and not going on uh, to preach and go through verses uh, 9 to 20. Now, take a look at your Bibles here, okay, get your Get your eyes down on that. In, in your translation of the Bible that you have in your hands, most likely, you see after verse 8 there, you'll see uh, this phrase in brackets. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts uh, do not include uh, chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. And then there's some, you know, kind of some numbers and some notes down in the bottom of your page about all of that. But then you see that verses 9 to 20 uh, continue, but the entire section is like in those double brackets. Do you see that there? You got that there in your, in your Bible? Now you might be thinking, well, what's, what's this all about here? You know, I, I don't feel like I've, I've seen that before. Well, well, let me explain. Now, first of all, okay, we're going to jump into a little bit of, you know, the science of textual criticism a little bit. We're not going to spend tons and tons of time uh, in this, but I think this is really important because we're, we're brought, uh, this is brought to our attention here in uh, Mark's gospel. But what you need to first understand is that when it comes to uh, the copy of God's word uh, that you hold in your hands today, okay, none of the original manuscripts or the original autographs um, of, of the New Testament still exist. Okay, so what I'm saying is that the, the actual letters that guys like Mark and, and, and Peter and, and John and, and Paul, the, the actual letters that they wrote to the church and the gospels and all that, we, we don't have those anymore. Those those are no longer with us. And, you know, they, they got damaged and destroyed or, or lost. And, I mean, if you think about it, uh, travel uh, was difficult back then, right? They were, they were walk-long distances, and they would be passing these things around. They were written on uh, papyrus in a, in a lot of ways. And so you can just imagine that some of this stuff would get damaged and lost uh, over, uh, over the years, okay? And so we don't have any of those originals uh, left, the actual letters that the New Testament authors wrote. And so your New Testament, again, that you have is constructed from the, the oldest copies of those original New Testament writings uh, that we have. Some of those copies, okay, were written as early as the early 100s AD. So very, very soon uh, after they were originally penned by guys like Mark and Peter and all of them, okay? And, and there are there are actually over 5,000, closer to 6,000 actually, of these copies of the originals um, in, that are in existence today in the Greek alone, all right? Now, that's a lot, 
Okay, we're, we're gonna get into more of that in just a second. But, but in general, among those, those copies that we have, there is remarkable, remarkable agreement and, and precision as to the content of, of those, those copies, Okay, so the, the, the doctrine all lines up, the, the flow of thought, the stories, the, 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 the details, you know, these copies that were written uh, over, you know, centuries, you know, we'll find an older copy at some point, and we'll, we'll compare it to what we've got, we're like, oh yeah, like, it lines up uh, almost per- like perfectly, it's amazing how, how the Lord has preserved uh, his word, okay? So again, in general, there's just remarkable agreement among these nearly 6,000 copies that we have. Mark 16, 9 to 20, being the main example, okay, of where these copies differ. Okay, you now actually, uh, there's one other example. It's John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11. Uh, that's also the, other, the only other section in the New Testament that has these like double brackets and the same kind of story uh, behind it. You know, here's what we need to know, okay? The oldest, the two oldest, and most important New Testament manuscripts that we have, from which our modern English versions of the Bible are translated, do not include verses 9 to 20. Okay, those two manuscripts, if you want to look them up at some point, are called the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. Okay, those are the two that we've got. Okay, on, on top of the two oldest manuscripts that we have, the, you know, some of the earliest church fathers, guys like Clement and, and Origen, you know, show no awareness of the existence of verses 9 uh, to 20. Okay, so, so based on that that's external evidence outside of the scriptures, based on that external evidence, it's almost universally accepted among scholars today uh, that this longer ending, 9 to 20, was not actually written uh, by Mark. Okay, but rather, it was added to the end of his gospel uh, sometime later, okay, though not long after, not like way after. Now, that being said, there's also internal evidence within these verses that that's also suggests that Mark was not uh, the author of this longer ending and that, it was, uh, and that it was added later. Let me give you a couple of examples. Take, take a look at verse 9, okay? Verse 9, you see here that there's a, there's a real lack of smooth transition between verse, verse 8 and verse 9. It says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week. So now it kind of goes back into like Jesus rising. We've already kind of talked about that he's risen. And then it says, you know, first to Mary Magdalene from, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So it's like, the, like reintroducing us to Mary Magdalene, even though we've already been introduced to her, like, Right? Again, it's just not a real smooth flow of thought here from verse 8. Okay, also, at least 12 words in verses 9 to 20 um, don't occur anywhere else uh, in the book of Mark. Okay? So it suggests that it's not his style. It suggests that somebody else uh, wrote this. And also, everything in verses 9 to 20 uh, is actually, we find it in other places in the scriptures. Okay, we find some of them word for word have been taken out of Matthew's gospel, for example. And uh, we see some of the details of some of these things in the book of, of Acts as well. So there's no new information in, in verses 9 to 20 that we don't find elsewhere uh, in the New Testament. Okay, so there's, there's nothing really that we gain from, from including these verses. And at the same time, nothing that we lose from their exclusion. Okay, so here's what we need to kind of understand here. It appears very clear that Mark didn't write this longer ending. Okay, but 
that being said, some old manuscripts do have this longest, longer ending. Okay, so think about it. We've got you know, five, almost 6,000 manuscripts in existence, right? Some of them have the, you know, this longer ending. Uh, some of them don't. I think where this really, the, the crux of this here is that the two oldest, most, most important and valuable manuscripts don't have it. And so that's really the big, the big clincher uh, for me here. And so the translators, as they're trying to put all this together, they're trying to figure out, do we include 9 to 20? Do we not? There's a, you know, a history of acceptance of these verses by, uh, among many in the early church, but, but not by everybody. And so that's why they include it in these double brackets here. It's kind of like a, like proceed with caution with these verses here. The ESV um, translation team uh, suggests that. Now, personally, I don't think they should be included here as as text. Instead, I think they should simply be a footnote at the bottom of our, at the bottom of our pages saying, you know, some of the older uh, uh, manuscripts said this, and, and, but the oldest ones are uh, different. Uh, don't. Okay, that being said, there are zero contradictions between what verses 9 to 20 say uh, with the rest of the Bible. Okay, these were merely additions that the early church inserted very early on uh, that they borrowed from other places in the New Testament. And so you and I, we can, be, we can be incredibly confident, hear me on this, okay? Incredibly confident in the accuracy and the transmission of the New Testament that we have in our hands. The process that these scribes went to, they were so meticulous in making sure that they, that they recorded these things for us accurately. It's been amazing to see how the Lord has preserved his word throughout the, uh, the century. Okay, understand that the New Testament, whether you are a Christian scholar or a secular scholar, it is widely believed that the, that the New Testament is the best attested document from the ancient world in our possession. It's, a, it's amazing, really. Now, have you ever heard of, of Homer's Iliad? We got like any English majors in here? I slept through a lot of that, okay? Homer's Iliad, okay? That's, that's the next best attested ancient document that we have. Now, hear this. Only 650 manuscripts exist. Yeah, that sounds like a lot, but that's that's not much when you compare, again, the nearly 6,000 Greek copies that we have of the New Testament writings. The number is actually more like 25,000 copies that we have when, we can, when you consider the other languages. You consider the, the, the Coptic, the Syriac, the, 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 the Latin, as well as others. Okay, so again, only 650 manuscripts of, of Homer's Iliad. Okay, the oldest being from... From 900 AD, that's the oldest copy of the original that we have, nine, the year 900. Now you need to understand that it was written, we believe, between the years 6 and 800 BC. So we're talking a 2,000 year gap between when this was originally written by Homer to, to the first copy uh, that we have. Okay, so the New Testament blows that out of the water, okay? It does, right? When you consider just the sheer volume of, of the copies that we have and, and the incredible agreement among those copies and, 
and that the earliest copies that we have of the New Testament were written like mere decades of when the original authors wrote, you and I have every single reason to be, to be confident and, and trust the accuracy and the validity and the inerrancy and the authority and, and, and the inspiration of the Bible. So you might be thinking, awesome, but why add this longer ending in in the first place? Well, most people believe that it was, it was added in by the early church because uh, verse 8, it just ends so abruptly. Right? It, it kind of leaves us hanging a little bit with, with the women just fleeing from the tomb in fear. Right? That doesn't sound like the way you end a gospel. Right? I, you know, what about the, you know, seeing Jesus? What about, what about the victorious ending? What about, what about all of that? Does, it, does this suggest that, that Mark's, you know, Mark originally did end it differently, but, but maybe that ending was lost? I don't know. That's, that's possible. It's, it's not so hard to imagine that. I mean, you think about if, you know, if, the, if the ending of, you know, if there was an original ending somewhere that, that was Mark's gospel, that's probably the last page, right? You ever have a book in your house that has, you know, kind of a beat up cover, right? You can imagine that maybe the last page you know, in a codex would, would be lost, but listen, it doesn't really matter. If, if God wanted to preserve that kind of ending for us, he would have, right? Either way, he decided that what we have is sufficient, right? Personally, personally, I think that ending at verse eight is totally in line with how Mark rolls, right? I really do, right? His, his fast Paced, right? No nonsense way that he works his way through the text, right? He'll, he'll share a story. It's kind of the Reader's Digest version. It's not, you know, immense detail. It's, you know, let's get to it. And, you know, immediately they're on to something else. We see the, the word immediately, you know, over and over and over again as we've read through it. That's his style of writing. It kind of makes me think that, that he meant to end it like this. I mean, just take a look at it again. Here we go back into it. Verse 7. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There will, you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and obeyed the angel's words perfectly. No, it says that they fled, right? They fled from the tomb for, for trembling and astonishment. It seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Right? This is how the women respond here in the heat of this, you know, somewhat overwhelming moment for them. Though we do know that their response here is, it's short-lived, right? The other gospels, remember the scriptures give us the full story here as, as to what happened. We can trust it. We know that their, their response is short-lived. They would, they would eventually, very quickly actually, go on to, to tell Peter and, and to tell the disciples everything. But I believe that Mark's gospel ends like this to get you and I to consider our own response. How will, how will you and I react now, today? We've come all the way through this now and we're at the end. So what do we do with this? It's been driving to the resurrection all the way through. We need to believe that God has done the impossible. Are we compelled to that? 
Are we compelled to believe and, and to proclaim that, that God has done the impossible? That he has raised Jesus from the dead? Now, certainly, evangelism is, is implied here. Right? We, we believe and then, and then we go and tell like the angel tells them to. We go out, we, we share, we, we, we speak the gospel, we, are, we articulate that, we, we have a heart for people and, and we share that. But, but in a more general, if you want to zoom out and think about it at a you know, 80,000 foot level, everything about my life and about your life should scream, he is risen. Right? Everything about our lives should, should proclaim that. Every detail not, not just the, the, the words we speak a couple of times a year if and when we go downtown to Toronto and, and share the good news of the homeless. Not just the, you know, the couple of times we have conversations with, with, with coworkers or, or, or friends or, or loved ones or whatever it might be. No, every area of our life should be, should be sharing the glorious news of the resurrection. Whether it's We've talked about these details before, whether it's my, my bank statements, how I, how I spend my money and, and the focus of all of that should, there should be ref, some reflection of, of the resurrection in that. How I spend my alone time, what my marriage looks like, how I, how I parent, my approach to work or, or leisure. The, the, the resurrection compels me to proclaim in, in every single way imaginable, whole scale, that God has done the impossible. So listen, has this gripped your life? To me, it would be just the biggest shame ever. You know, if we got to the end of this gospel and, and just kind of left from here in a few moments and, and went on to the next thing without deeply considering whether I'm compelled by this astonishing act. Right? The history and, and universe changing event of the resurrection. Will you believe him? Will you proclaim him? 